And the, the uh, last uh, presentation for the morning um, is on HIV and hepatitis C in our co-infected uh, patients. Uh, clearly, um, Hep C um, dominates for many of us our concerns about some of our patients um, who are doing well from every other uh, standpoint. And uh, Chip Schooley is uh, here to update us on some new drugs, some new data, and, and hopefully some new optimism for this uh, group of our patients. Thank you very much, Steve. After a long morning, I'm the only thing between you and lunch, so I'll try to, uh, to uh, get you uh, through this with, um, and retain your optimism. Uh, I think that uh, if there's any area of medicine that's changing rapidly these days, it's, it's HCV medicine. And I would hope that this crowd that played such a great role in seeing the benefits of therapy for HIV uh, will play the same kind of a role for HCV therapeutics as this field moves for, uh, forward. Because I'd like to make the point that over the next several years, there will be many, many more people to treat for HCV than we can currently manage with the current crop of treaters. And as we'll discuss toward the end of this talk, the principles for HCV therapy are going to be the ones that this audience helped uh, define for HIV. And there's no one better qualified to do this uh, than people uh, at this course, which is why we've changed the name of the IAS to the International AIDS Antiviral Society USA. So let's um, start with just asking a quick question. How many patients uh, with HCV do you uh, currently manage? And this could include mono-infected or co-infected patients. Um, using your fingers and the uh, snap. Okay, so we actually have a third of this audience with quite a bit of experience with, uh, with HCV management. And up until now, a lot of this management has been kind of managing the complications of the disease, but I think uh, more and more are going to be able to go after the underlying disease itself. So I'm going to truncate the first two-thirds of my talk, um, which was going to focus on uh, some of the issues about the epidemiology of HIV, HCV co-infection, and some of the altered pathogenesis in natural history, and summarize quite a bit that's in the uh, workbook already to be able to get to the therapeutic advances, which are driving a lot of the optimism in the field and where I think uh, attention should be focused at the current time. Now, this is a very striking uh, graphic that appeared in the Annals of Internal Medicine uh, in, uh, uh, already uh, earlier in this year that makes the point when you look at the causes of death from uh, viral infections in the U.S. Uh, that HCV now surpasses that of HIV. Uh, this would not have been something we would have thought of uh, as recently as five or ten years ago. But uh, if you think about uh, numbers of deaths, uh, right now HCV overall is a bigger cause of death than HIV is, thanks to the uh, advanced therapeutics that we've been talking about. When you look at the uh, groups that have been most affected by this, uh, the groups uh, are really uh, include all uh, demographic and ethnic groups, but are particularly uh, affected are, are Hispanics uh, and other people of color. Now, Despite all of this, uh, the number of people who have become infected has been decreasing gradually except for one risk group, and that is uh, MSMs, uh, male homosexuals in urban areas where there are emerging uh, sexual network-associated transmissions associated with very much the same sorts of transmi transmission behaviors that we saw in the early HIV epidemic, 
for the most part, the number of new infections has declined steadily uh, since uh, the early 1990s. Nonetheless, because the natural history of HCV uh, is a 20 to 30 year natural history, we're seeing more and more morbidity and mortality from the disease because of the accumulated burden of HCV in the community uh, gradually catching up uh, with uh, mortality and morbidity uh, over this 20 or 30 year period. When you look at the HIV HCV overlap uh, in the uh, HIV infected population, about 20% overall are co-infected with HCV. And this is particularly true uh, in uh, the early epidemic, mostly ID-associated uh, uh, transmission, more and more recently, sexual networks. And we've learned from these sexual network exp uh, experiences that people can be infected multiple times, uh, be treated for HCV, and be reinfected so, uh, with, with additional exposure. So this is really going to be a problem very much like uh, acute HIV infection. Worldwide, HCV is, again, a bigger problem than HIV in terms of the number of people infected, about four times as many people infected worldwide with HCV than HIV. Uh, you can see that uh, large areas of uh, South America, uh, Central Africa, and, uh, and uh, East Asia. And there are areas where HIV, HCV co-infection are particularly a problem, Southern Europe, uh, and uh, in the, uh, in the uh, Myanmar and southwest China, as well as in the U.S. Genetic diversity of HCV is very important to understand for a couple of reasons. One is it will have a big impact on what we're going to talk about in terms of therapeutics. Uh, and the other is that uh, when you uh, think about the epidemic of HCV, there really are multiple epidemics, uh, each one involving a given genotype, uh, circulating around the world. The HCV uh, genotypes that uh, we see around uh, in the U.S. are uh, genotypes 1A and B are the most common uh, in uh, Europe. Uh, other genotypes are, uh, are more common uh, than they are in the U.S. The reason this is important is that genotype 1A and 1B are, are the hardest to treat with interferon and ribavirin. Uh, and are the ones at which most of the currently developing drugs are being, um, are being directed. When you look at the uh, awareness of HCV in the U.S., uh, this, this is just, these are some data that uh, uh, came from the Institute of Medicine. Uh, what you can see is that over time, uh, more and more people have become aware of their infection. Uh, and so at this point in time, uh, we have identified probably two-thirds of the people with HCV infection. Uh, we've only treated about a half of those, and a very small minority of those have been actually cured. So we have a large number of people who are still unaware of their infection and an even larger number who are untreated. And these numbers will drive uh, the challenge to us as healthcare providers over the next several years. In terms of altered pathogenesis and natural history, uh, the most important things are that uh, when you become co-infected with HIV, levels of HCV RNA go up. Uh, from the clinical perspective, the co-infected uh, co individuals have a three-fold uh, uh, three faster rate of disease progression than people who are mono-infected. So their 20 or 30-year disease progression uh, horizon from infection to cirrhosis may be as short as 8 to 10 years. Uh, it is true that if you treat HIV successfully, you can decrease the rate of HCV disease progression, but you don't stop it. 
you just slow it down toward what you would be if you were HCV mono-infected. But this is one of the reasons that uh, the IES USA guidelines uh, recommend people who are HCV infected uh, be given consideration for any retroviral therapy at any given CD4 cell count. Uh, we felt that way for several years. And finally, uh, until recently, HCV uh, treatment success rates are lower in co-infected individuals, but one of the most important and exciting findings of CROI is that this gap is decreasing rapidly. Now, in HCV infection, uh, in uh, co-infected patients, uh, this 20 or 30 year horizon from acute infection to decompensation, uh, hepatocellular carcinoma, as I said earlier, uh, decreases uh, to a uh, range of uh, eight to 10 years. Now, what does it look like? Uh, well, you saw a lot of very elegant tissue with uh, uh, Tim Shacker. Uh, with HCV, uh, the disease is in the liver. And when you look at normal liver, uh, you get this nice pink look to it. Over time, though, with inflammation and the uh, stimulation of, of fibrous tissue, you move from a liver uh, that looks like Dr. Follin's beast to one that probably looks like mine uh, with this gradually increasing fibrosis and inflammation uh, that both interferes with hepatic function and interferes with circulation, leading to the complications of, of advanced liver disease uh, related to uh, uh, liver failure, and that sets people up with regeneration and so forth uh, for hepatocellular carcinoma. Now, let me spend the rest of the time now talking really about the therapeutic advances, uh, primarily uh, that have been uh, occurring over the last 24 months, and then finish by saying a little bit about what we expect to see in the next 24 months. Now, in terms of, of definitions, one very important thing to realize with HCV is that we're uh, actually not uh, trying to come up with a regimen you can tolerate for the rest of your life. We're trying to come up with a regimen that is successful and will lead to, as the surgeons will put it, a virectomy in a period as short as 12 to 24 weeks. How do we define treatment success with HCV? Well, if you look at HCV RNA at the beginning of a course of any HCV therapy, one sees a very rapid drop, very much like you see with HIV infection, in fact, even faster with a first kinetic that very soon gives rise to a second kinetic and you drop below the limit uh, of detection in the plasma. With HCV infection, uh, we, uh, the traditional treatment has been 24 to 48 weeks, depending on the genotype. Uh, and at this point in time, you would uh, calculate the fraction of people you start on therapy and, uh, say, and, and, uh, and develop a... Uh, percentage of those who have no evidence of HCV RNA at the end of your treatment uh, course. This would be the end of treatment response, ETR or EOT. The gold standard, however, is what happens after that. And 24 weeks later uh, is uh, the uh, time point that matters the most, the so-called sustained virologic response time, SVR. And those who don't have virus come back uh, within 24 weeks of stopping therapy are people who are uh, declared um, sustained virologic responders. Uh, this, uh, for all intents and purposes, means that these people are cured of their HCV infection. And if you see HCV again in them, they probably become reinfected. Most of these people who uh, rebound uh, uh, and relapse uh, will, if you could go back one second, please, uh, will uh, relapse within the first uh, four to 12 weeks after stopping therapy so that you get a pretty good idea about whether someone is cured 
in a very short period of time after you stop therapy. Now, where has therapy gone for HCV over the course of the last 20 years? Uh, in the early 1990s, we began to use old-fashioned interferon, uh, and when you treat with interferon by itself, uh, at the end of a course of 48 weeks of therapy, about 25% of people would have no detectable HCV RNA in plasma, but half of these would relapse over the course of the next uh, uh, 24 weeks. So you end up with a sustained virologic response rate of about 15%. If you give higher doses of interferon, you can push more people to being undetectable, but the relapse rate is much higher, and you don't really gain much in terms of a sustained virologic response rate. Uh, if you add ravavirin, uh, which um, has been uh, a drug looking for a use for almost 300 years, much to everybody's surprise, uh, when you uh, look at the end of treatment, you have a higher response rate than by interferon by itself but the relapse rate is much lower than with high-dose interferon, so that you're pushing the response rate up closer to 40% looking at all comers. Uh, with pegylated interferon, and this is just interferon that is uh, conjugated to polyethylene glycol and allows you to give the drug less frequently and provides more stable dosing, better tolerated, you have a response rate that is about twice that of old-fashioned interferon, but not as good as old-fashioned interferon plus ribavirin. But when you add Pegylated interferon to ribavirin, we now are getting end-of-treatment response rates of about 60% and, um, and sustained virologic response rates of about 50%. Now, these data are looking at all comers, uh, genotypes 1, 2, 3, and 4. If you just look at genotype 1, which are the ones of the patients that we see most often in the U.S., the sustained virologic response rates are between 40 and 45%. So this is kind of diluted by people with genotypes 2 and 3 and really is the best you can expect to do with therapy that was available till about 24 months ago. Now, what happened about uh, a year ago uh, was that the first two directly acting agents against HCV were approved, tolaparavir and bosepravir, uh, approved kind of back-to-back -back, uh, after uh, clinical trials had been completed in an FDA review. And these sorts of, of uh, announcements were the sorts of things we used to see in the mid-1990s when, uh, uh, when HIV drugs were being approved by the FDA and had the same kind of enthusiasm in the HCV treating community and among patients uh, with HCV. The approval were based on relatively straightforward studies. Uh, this is the uh, pivotal trial, one of the major pivotal trials with telaprevir. Uh, and the clinical design was very straightforward. Uh, the uh, patients were treated with telaprevir uh, and pegylated uh, interferon and ribavirin, uh, and uh, there is either response-guided therapy in which you can look for an early virologic response and if people are suppressed, truncate their therapy or, or treat them for a full uh, 48 weeks. Uh, the, uh, compared to placebo, and the bottom line is when you look at sustained virologic response rates in this, uh, this group, uh, this, is the, uh, this is the pegylated interferon ribavirin group, standard of care, about 45% uh, overall, uh, rises to uh, about 70 to 75%, uh, whether you give telaprevir or, uh, for 8 weeks or 12 weeks, followed by additional pegylated interferon and ribavirin. Uh, as with uh, interferon and ribavirin, the response rates are better uh, in uh, non-blacks than in blacks. Uh, this, most of this is driven by 
uh, a uh, genotype uh, differences uh, in the um, in one of the um, promoters uh, for uh, uh, interferon lambda. It is not at all clear why this uh, is the case, but it's been true for both old forms of therapy and new forms of therapy that there's still a treatment gap uh, that is based on gender and genetics. Now, in treatment experience patients, and these are people who have been previously treated with interferon and ribavirin and fail therapy, uh, if you look at uh, people who um, uh, overall, you see their response rates are about 10% less uh, than people who are treatment naive. Uh, if you just retreat them with interferon, you can see the response rates are in the 5 to 24% rate. Now, there are different types of response of, pre, of prior treatment failures. There are people who are relapsers, and these are people who would have a no detectable HCVRNA in their plasma at the end of treatment, but then would relapse when you stop therapy. And these people did the best. They had response rates of about 80 or 85 percent uh, when they were when uh, tilaprovir was added uh, to pegylated interferon and ribavirin. There are partial responders, and these are people who, when they were put on interferon and ribavirin, had partial suppression of their uh, HCVRNA, but never got to undetectable, um, and failed therapy. When they were retreated, their response rate was uh, not quite as good as relapsers, but still much better than treated, being treated with interferon ribavirin by itself. And then there are so-called null responders, and these are people who have less than a log or two suppression of HCVRNA the first time around. And their response rates were about 30%, which was a big surprise to many of us. Uh, we would have thought that they would not have had this kind of response rate uh, with basically adding one drug to, uh, uh, to Laprovir to an interferon-based regimen that had failed miserably before. But the bottom line is that even in pre previously treated patients, uh, there are benefits to uh, the addition of protease inhibitor therapy. Now, the other uh, drug that uh, has been approved for treatment of HCV infection is bosepravir. And bosepravir is given a slightly different way. Uh, it has a lead-in of pegylated interferon ribavirin of about four weeks, uh, after which patients are treated with pegylated, with, uh, pegylated interferon ribavirin and bosepravir. Uh, for uh, 24 to 48 weeks, depending on the virologic response. Uh, and the bottom line is, uh, with uh, this uh, approach, uh, success rates are in the 60 to 70 percent range. Now, again, as in the HIV days, we don't want to do cross-study comparisons because the mix of ethnic groups, uh, genotypes, and so forth across studies can't be compared uh, safely. So it's very difficult to say this drug is less potent than telaprovir, but the success rates still show you about a 25 to 30 percent improvement over pegylated interferon and ribavirin. And again, the same gap that is ethnically based. In treatment experience patients, again, uh, they didn't, uh, the uh, bosepravir studies did not include null responders. They included people who had relapsed and people who were partial responders. And again, you can see that Overall response rates were in the 60% range. Relapsers did better than partial responders. And everybody did better than people who had been treated with pegylated interferon and ribavirin by itself. And even if, with abbreviated therapy, 65% uh, of the people who were in the study had an early virologic response, which is defined of having HCVRNA negative at 4 and 12 weeks. When you do that, uh, you can be treated uh, for a shorter period as 24 weeks with a very good response rate. So this year of interferon therapy issue 
has already been taken off the table for most people uh, who have this early virologic response. Now, what are the side effects uh, that one sees with uh, these two new drugs? The major side effect of telaprevir that is added to the interferon toxicity has to do with rash. Uh, the rash uh, is something that uh, usually starts within 8 to 12 weeks of initiation of therapy, and once it starts, usually progresses. Uh, it can progress uh, to be quite severe, uh, involving um, mucous membranes with a Stevens-Johnson-like uh, picture, uh, and requires careful management. With early uh, appearance of a rash, one can follow the patients closely, but when mucous membranes are involved or it gets too severe, you have to stop the telaprevir. The good news is that the, that the damage the virus is doing to the virus, that the drug is doing to the virus, has been done by 12 weeks, and you don't need to uh, use telaprevir longer than 12 weeks. So about the time that this uh, problem appears, uh, you've already gotten to a point that telaprevir is not as important and at a time when you would stop the drug based on your approach, uh, on, the, uh, uh, on the approach the drug was studied with. With bocephrevir, uh, there is more anemia in people who are treated with bocephrevir than pegylated interferon robovirin uh, and uh, a strange taste. Now, let's talk about co-infected individuals because that's what this, this audience has seen most up until now. And these are data that were presented primarily at CROI uh, about four weeks ago. Now, telaprevir uh, is um, uh, the, the first telaprevir study uh, uh, in combination with pegylated interferon robovirin. It was reported by Doug Dietrich at CROI. Uh, in the background data, I'll show you a little more data in just a minute, but in general, the drug-drug interactions with telaprevir are less complicated to manage than those with bocephrevir. Uh, there are modest drug-drug interactions between telaprevir, efavirenz, adazanavir, abustadazanavir, and tenofovir, but no dose adjustments are required. Uh, if patients are on efavirenz, telaprevir uh, levels are lowered, and you have to increase the telaprevir dose. Now, in this uh, study that was done to look at uh, telaprevir uh, in uh, HIV, HCV co-infected patients, there were two parts of the study, one group was not on ART because they didn't require any retroviral therapy. The other group uh, was on ART, and they had to uh, be suppressed and on uh, efavirenz, adazanavir-based um, regimens. Uh, the design was to uh, give uh, telaprevir uh, and pegylated interferon robovirin uh, for 12 weeks, followed by 36 weeks of, of interferon and robovirin compared to 48 weeks of pegylated interferon robovirin for both arms. The data that Doug uh, presented uh, at this, um, at this uh, meeting, uh, which involved uh, 13 patients in Part A, these are the patients who were not on antiretroviral therapy, 47 patients on Part B. The bottom line uh, was that uh, the patients who received uh, telaprevir and, rob uh, and robovirin uh, at um, uh, with um, uh, this is SVR12 because only 12 weeks have relapsed, but remember I told you that SVR12 and 24 are generally pretty close. You can see that the benefit of uh, at the end of treatment response in all comers uh, was about uh, 30% and approaches that that we see in people who are mono-infected with HCV. So now we're finally getting to a situation where people with HIV, HCV co-infection can be told that they're treatment response rates are going to be close to 75%, which is very different 
from the 25 to 40 percent, we could tell them even with pegylated interferon and robovirin uh, in the best of studies. Now, in terms of the um, side effects that we're seeing in this study, the main ones, again, uh, were these side effects that I talked to you about earlier, uh, this uh, issue of uh, pruritus, uh, nausea, uh, and, and rash, but really rash and pruritus were what drove most of the uh, toxicity management problems uh, that, um, that these patients had. Now, in terms of drug-drug interactions, um, the, uh, looking at the concentrations of telaprevir uh, in patients who were on efavirenz, aratozanavir, ritonavir, uh, the, uh, there were no clinically significant differences. These are percentages of, of levels compared to on mono-infected patients. So these drugs did not affect the CMIN, the average concentration of the CMAX of telaprevir. In the... Um, Mentioning, of course, that as I, as I mentioned to you, you have to give increased doses of telaprevir in patients who are on efavirenz. Uh, and then when you look at the uh, antiretroviral therapy uh, drug concentrations, you can again see that uh, the, um, uh, in the co-infected patients, uh, no major differences uh, when the drugs are given together. Now let's uh, go to bosepravir. In bosepravir, uh, the PK data are complicated, uh, primarily uh, because bosepravir decreases the concentrations of ritonavir in the, uh, the uh, ritonavir-boosted regimens. This, in turn, drives down the levels of the, co of the boosted uh, protease inhibitors, uh, leading you to be very um, unhappy and, and uh, uncomfortable using boosted protease inhibitors with bosepravir. These data were not available really at the time the study started, and some of the patients were treated with these regimens nonetheless. In the other direction, uh, lopinavir, ritonavir, and darunavir, ritonavir, but not adazanavir, ritonavir, will drive down levels of, of bosepravir. So these bidirectional interactions with bosepravir are really quite destructive. And when you compare, uh, I'm not going through this in detail because the data, the, the table is in your book, but the data, this is kind of summarizes the difference between uh, telaprevir and bosepravir, making the point that bosepravir is more complicated, uh, particularly with lopinavir, ritonavir, and darunavir uh, than telaprevir is. Now, how do patients do when you treat them? Now, this, is, this study was presented right after the study of the, uh, that I just showed you. Uh, this is Mark Solkowski uh, uh, presenting the study. And these were male, and uh, these were patients with chronic genotype 1 infection, previously treatment naive. Uh, and all of these patients uh, were treated for uh, their HIV infection, but they could not have been on AZT, DDI, D4T, efavirenz because of drug interactions, etrovirine and averapine uh, because of NNRTI interactions. They were allowed to be on some of the protease inhibitors I told you about, but again, that was not known at the time the study was started. Uh, the design was based on the bosepravir approach of a lead-in with pegylated interferon ribavirin, followed by uh, traditional therapy with peg interferon ribavirin uh, peg or peg interferon ribavirin bosepravir for 44 weeks. And the uh, uh, bottom line, again, is that uh, the SVR12, the sustained virologic response rate, was about 35% better in the 60% range in people who received bosepravir compared to pegylated interferon and ribavirin. 
Now, there were some breakthroughs uh, in patients of the antiretroviral therapy, three, in fact, two that were significant uh, in terms of HIV, RNA levels, and notice these were people who were on uh, ritonavir-boosted protease inhibitors. So, again, uh, a little bit more complicated to deal with drug-drug interactions with bosepravir. So where are we headed? Uh, well, right now we can tell people who have uh, HCV infection uh, along with their HIV that we have much more to offer them, higher response rates, but still complicated um, and uh, not uh, necessarily 100% um, successful. Well, we're headed uh, toward more and more uh, treatment um, interferon-free regimens. The first example of this was one that Anna Locke published, which was um, uh, looking at um, uh, a, two drugs, one that was uh, suppressing uh, a, uh, the HCV polymerase and another one, a protease in the bottom line. I'm, uh, this is I'm NS5A, not 5B, plus NS3 protease. And the bottom line is you can see that several of the patients uh, were able to sustain um, the um, sustained virologic response rates, but you can also see a larger number actually had rebound. Now, this was a big surprise to many in the hepatology community because many of them didn't think you could ever treat HCV without interferon or ribavirin. But this makes the point that you can. Uh, and as I'll show you in a few minutes, with better drugs, the success rate is improving. Now, the problem with uh, these uh, approach with these drugs is that um, the uh, is drug resistance. Uh, HCV and HIV have many similar characteristics. But HCV in some ways is HIV on steroids. There are up to 100 times as much virus is produced in a given day. It has an RNA polymerase which shares many of the structural and functional features of HIV's polymerase. But because it's copying the RNA in both directions rather than going through DNA and back, it actually copies the RNA twice and can make twice as many errors with 100 times as much virus per day. So it's really a mess when it comes to selection for drug resistance. Uh, there are also are non, no, no overlapping reading frames. HIV, remember, has overlapping reading frames that can kill a virion if you just change one amino acid and leave the other amino acids in place. With H, HCV, there are none of these overlapping reading frames. So HCV, from the standpoint of drug resistance, uh, is, a, is an issue. And both drugs have a viral quasi-species we have to deal with. So in terms of the uh, demonstration in, in vivo, uh, from the first uh, directly um, uh, acting agent that we saw a long time ago, this is telaprovir, rapid emergence of resistance occurs in three to seven days when used by itself that gradually uh, is replaced by wild-type virus. And it's been seen uh, with uh, the protease inhibitors, uh, with the polymerase inhibitors, and uh, and with the NS5A antagonists as well. The decay of these, uh, of these uh, mutants when you just do uh, full genome, uh, just traditional genome uh, sequencing is that they last for, uh, this is just showing decay and, and patients uh, who had been receiving telaprovir uh, when uh, telaprovir failed on the combination regimen. You can see you can detect resistance in about 75% of people. And you can detect it in 40% of people as, as long as 8 to 10 months after therapy was over. So there's a gradual recalibration of wild-type virus and uh, drug-resistant virus that occurs over time. As we all know from our HIV experience, this is just looking at the predominant species and doesn't tell us what's going on 
the quasi-species underneath the surface. If you did, um, if you do um, uh, high um, throughput screening and try to look at multiple strains of virus within the same patient, what this would mean in terms of retreating a patient with a cross-resisting regimen, we don't yet know. Uh, but it's certainly something that we can test, uh, given the experience with the HIV uh, drug development paradigm. Now, there are some drugs that are less prone to resistance than others, and it happens to be that it's the same class of drugs as with an HIV, and these are the, the, uh, the nucleoside analog polymerase inhibitors. And the reason for that is that when you have wild-type virus and put a mutation in that uh, allows the virus to resist, the polymerase inhibitor's fitness is devastated. And it's very difficult to either in vivo or in vitro select for drug-resistant virus with uh, the uh, new polymerase inhibitors that are being used in some of the early trials for HCV. One of the ones that is uh, causing the biggest buzz uh, is uh, a, a nucleoside called 7977, uh, which is given uh, once a daily with, with or without food uh, and has been uh, presented in the most two recent liver meetings uh, to uh, uh, with data that are really quite striking. Now, in the study that was presented at the liver meetings in San Francisco last November, uh, the so-called electron study, they did what was really quite edgy. They took, uh, when they treated, when they used GS7977 with pegylated interferon ribavirin in a very small kind of 10-patient series of cohorts, 100% sustained virologic response rates. That's great. They then said, well, what happens uh, if you just uh, drop the pegylated interferon ribavirin, just use Robivarin NGS 7977, all, uh, an all-oral uh, regimen, 100% success rate. They had one more arm uh, of uh, GS 7977 uh, by itself, and you can see that for reasons, again, that make no sense, Robivarin is required. Now, this was in a group of patients. You have to notice genotype 2 and 3, and as I told you earlier, this is an easier genotype to treat. It's not particularly clear why it would make a difference with uh, 7977 because we think this has to do with interference sensitivity, but, the, but with, with genotype 2 and 3, here we are with two oral uh, bioavailable uh, agents, 100% success rate. In the uh, more recently presented at CROI was a study that then tried to extend this to genotype 1. And this was a study that looked at people who had been null responders, no previous treatment response rate to interferon, uh, and then another group who had been, uh, who were treatment naive, 10 of these, 25 of these. Uh, they were given uh, GS7977 plus Robivarin, just like in those uh, study, in the study I just showed you. And uh, what was seen at CROI was that in the, uh, the null responding cohort had been completed. And you can see that at the end of 12 weeks, all the patients were undetectable, which was really quite striking. The problem is that when therapy was stopped, every single one of them, all but one relapsed. And so there's a very big difference between the null responding genotype 1 patients and the genotype 2 and 3 patients. We don't yet know about the genotype 1 interferon responders. We will know, or, or treatment naive patients, we'll know about that later this week when the data are presented at EASL, we've been told. Uh, and if they look like this, there's more work to do. Uh, it may be that a protease inhibitor will need to be added, it may be that treatment will need to be longer. But I think this really makes the point that we're headed into a very rapidly changing era with the kinds of studies that we saw coming out in the HIV days that will really 
change kind of every three or four months what we're thinking about this disease. Uh, the other thing this points out is when you look at this, we, we would not have had an HIV drug that would suppress you below the limit of detection and not see the virus rebound because you would end up with drug resistance uh, while the patient's on therapy. Here we have the drug, the virus fully suppressed, um, and then when therapy is stopped, it rebounds. So again, this gets to the point of how hard it is to select for resistance with this particular class of drugs. So then where, where are we now? Let me just close by saying that, uh, just summarizing a few points, we've got a very large population with uh, HIV and HCV co-infection, about 200,000 people in the U.S. We've got about 4 million people who are HCV infected and will require therapy and will be wanting therapy, knowing that the success rates are increasing and that they will not need interferon for much longer. Uh, I've already made the point that our patients are ones who, the co-infected patients will accelerate uh, their HCV disease progression. Uh, it's more complicated uh, to treat patients with co-infection, but the stakes are higher because their disease progression is more rapid. The new acting agents are pro progressing very rapidly. Uh, we already have interferon-free agents uh, regimens here now. And again, by next year at this time, uh, I think we'll be having the kinds of, of discussions that we've had for HIV and uh, therapy in the late 1990s with 10 or 15 different studies. There are over 40 drugs in development for HCV right now. Uh, and that, as I said uh, to begin this talk, um, I think this audience is going to play a very important role in treating these patients because uh, there aren't enough people to treat uh, HCV if we stay with the current treating population. One of the reasons for that the current treating population has them is that the treatment for HCV was so um, unpalatable to patients, they didn't want to be treated until they had a liver biopsy, so they had to be treated. Uh, as we move to regimens that can um, be uh, well-tolerated, given for a shorter period of time, and have a high degree of success, people are going to be coming in saying, I've got this virus in my liver. Uh, you can measure it in my bloodstream. I want it gone. I don't need a liver biopsy to be convinced I need therapy. Um, and I don't think you're going to be able to find the current treating population of, of gastroenterologists who are not really all gastroenterologists or even all hepatologists, but a subset of the hepatologists are going to be able to manage this influx of new patients. And with some of the things that uh, I tried to close with, I think it's very clear the treatment principles for this population will be very much like what we've been dealing with for the last 15 or 20 years. I apologize for going so rapidly, but um, we're done. Thanks very much. was fantastic. Um, we are going to have time for some questions. We are going to start the afternoon on time at 125 in part because you don't have a lot of shopping opportunities in the neighborhood. Um, and so if we could, we could start with some uh, questions first. Um, should um, a PI be used in non-type 1 or A or B inf um, HCV infections? That's a great question. The um, uh, genotype 1, genotype 2 and 3 patients, but not 4, 5, and 6, genotype 2 and 3 patients uh, have a very good response rate to interferon and robovirin by themselves, the response rates of 85 to 90 percent. The HCV protease inhibitors have much less activity, the first generation protease inhibitors have much less activity against genotype 2 and 3 than they do against genotype 1. So for those patients, there is no current reason to add uh, interferon uh, or add a protease inhibitor 
to interferon and ribavirin. There are some second-generation protease inhibitors that are more potent against genotype 1 that also have activity against genotype 2 and 3. And this uh, polymerase inhibitor I showed you has cross-reactivity against uh, uh, genotypes 2 and 3. So studies are ongoing looking at, uh, at uh, those um, uh, patients to get away from interferon ribavirin. Um, and so based on your sort of attempts at comparison of telaprevir and bosepravir, um, would you ever choose bosepravir in a HIV-infected patient? Bosepravir, no, if, if you have a patient who is on um, a uh, regimen that is not affected by bosepravir, like tenofovir, FTC, and raltegravir, for example, uh, bosepravir is going to be well tolerated, and, and you can deal with the drug-drug interactions. Uh, there are some patients who, on telaprevir-based regimens, run into troubles with uh, with rash that you can't manage. So, uh, I think the um, the uh, message here is that it's going to take a bit more time to sort out uh, the drug-drug interactions with bosepravir. Uh, and for the short term, the people who need to be treated uh, in co-infection who are on these uh, interacting drugs will probably have to be treated primarily with telaprevir. And, and there are a few patients co-infected who you're ready to start HCV treatment, but they're not yet on HIV treatment. You may have T-cells 600, low viral loads, 500, 1,000. Do you think all co-infected patients should be co-treated? You know, with a CD4 cell count that high and the fact that interferon, that the current course of therapy with these new regimens can be short and will be shortened, will be shortened further as we go uh, along, the longest is a year. And uh, my bet is as we begin to use uh, some of these combination regimens that are currently in development, we may be treating people for a shorter period of time as 12 to 20 to 24 weeks. Uh, people with high CD4 cell count, there's no... I don't think there's a real reason to try to start them on six drugs as opposed to three. Uh, so I, I think in many of those folks, treating their HCV first and then going on to deal with their HIV infection makes a lot of sense. In the older days where we had less chance of success and were using interferon ribavirin, um, I think it was a very different story. We tried in the ACDG to do a study of which to treat first. And it's like any treatment uh, study that's ever been done about when to start treatment. Patients want to read about the study, but they don't want to be part of it themselves because they know when they want to start therapy. And so we, we couldn't enroll that study and, uh, um, and gave up doing it. But I think in, the, in this case, because the HCV therapy is going to be short, for people with high CD4 cell counts doing one thing at a time might make sense. And then one last question, which I think is an important one. Until we actually have some proven ribavirin sparing regimens, is, especially if we're retreating, is there ribavirin resistance should ribavirin at the present time be part of every retreatment regimen? Uh, right now, I mean, I, I've been um, amazed that ribavirin lasts as long as it has, but every time somebody tries to put a stake in its heart, it, it comes back kind of like um, Michelle Bachman did for a while. <laughs> but the, um, the, uh, uh, in, in a study I didn't show you, uh, Vertex tried to do a study that looked at uh, dropping either ribavirin or dropping uh, telaprevir. And in fact, interferon and ribavirin does better than interferon and telaprevir in terms of sustained virologic response rates, even though when you give ribavirin by itself, you can almost see no dent in HCV RNA at most a half log. Ribavirin, a big drop, and then a rebound. 
But when you try to get rid of Robivarin, this, uh, it may just be what Robivarin does. It puts enough sand in the gears to prevent the emergence of resistance. Right now, we've, we're at a point that uh, it's been the last drug that people have been able to get rid of. Uh, I'm a, uh, a rose-colored glasses guy, and I think that there are going to be better drugs that will do the same thing, that will have potency and resistance, resistance, if you will. But for now, uh, Robivarin, uh, we're stuck with. Um, because it's so difficult to show a decrease in HCVRNA levels with Robivarin by itself, it's really hard to know whether somebody's virus is resistant. And when people have tried to map mutations and things, um, there's a lot of literature about it, a lot of heat, but not a lot of light. So I think in t uh, at this point in time, uh, irrespective of whether they've failed a Robivarin-based regimen in the past, if you're going to retreat them, Robivarin should be part of the regimen.